five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Dolphin Island. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Today on SpaceQ, I'll be talking with Jim Cantrell, CEO of Vector Space Systems. Vector Space may be a company that's only a year old, but it's built on a strong heritage of individuals, hardware, and recently closed their Series A round of funding with Sequoia Capital for $21 million. They are entering a market space where there is a shortage of small satellite launch capacity, and if they can get their launch vehicles operational in the time frame they've set out, they have an opportunity to capture some of the small satellite launch market needs. Welcome, Jim, to the SpaceQ podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. Uh, you've had a long career in the space community and have worked for Space Dynamics Lab, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, the French space agency Kness. You were employee number two at SpaceX. You were one of the founders of Moon Express, and you've had success with your own consulting and space intelligence company, Stratspace, not to mention you're, you also race cars. So what prompted you to start another company, in this case, Vector Space, just over a year ago? <laughs> Great, great question. Um, so, so late in life and having done things, it, it's not no, a normal and sane thing to start a new company, especially one that's a launch vehicle that we always make fun of. You know, you want to you want to become a, a millionaire in the in the launch business, start out as a billionaire. That's what we all told Elon in the beginning. Um, so, so yeah, good question. What what really happened was a series of circumstances that let me realize this was a great opportunity. And, uh, you know, through those career points that you, you mentioned, I've always been involved in the small satellite side of things, whether it's been for military uses or uh, just generically, like uh, with uh, Planetary Society helping them with LightSail, which was kind of my brainchild that we built. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's been that area on the front engine of technology that I thought where all the innovation was, and, and that's the attractive part of the industry. So it, it, it started to sink into me over the last 10 years as the Iraq war ground on, and, and we, we kept seeing you know big companies uh, doing the same things and spending more money at it, that uh, there ought to be a far better way to do things, but um, there really, really wasn't until we started to see uh, some of the commercial money start to be invested in uh, in small sats, particularly skybox imaging, which I got involved with uh, from the start, and uh, that was that was sort of an aha moment for me. Um, you know, if I'd have thought back in my career, I saw enough of the uh, of, of the of the sort of new space history with with Lou Friedman and the Planetary Society. When, when the government wouldn't do it, we'd just go out and find other people who had private money, and we just went and did it, like exploring Mars with the Russians and the, and the French. That was quite the notion in the 80s. Uh, so, so really what was happening uh, with Skybox and some of these other companies was the same thing. And, and this time, people are in it to make money, which then means that they're in it to innovate and, and to do things and create value, which has always been sort of a core, um, core belief of mine is if you're not creating value, then what are you doing with your time? So uh, as I as I watched and, and got involved with some of these these new companies, um, I, I became became involved again with the aerospace industry, um, and and I found it uh, I was having fun again, and uh, that hadn't happened for almost 20 years. So uh, it was it was it was refreshing. But the thing that we kept seeing was over and over it was space access that was the problem, and you know really we saw that on two levels. One. There were just weren't enough rockets to launch the satellites that were being produced. Number two, the the satellites were being produced much quicker than the rides could manifest. So, you know, the cost of the satellites started to come down to the point where, you know, the, the investor money would, would pour into it with innovative new things, but they couldn't get them into space. And then number three, because there are so many satellites being built, there aren't that many experts in the, in the business. You know, I always joke there's 325 people in the aerospace industry. Well, you start to see that when, when there's so many startups building satellites, and these kids out of, out of school, smart kids with no experience with it, are building them out of you know commercial pieces that they order on the Internet, but they don't have the secret sauce to make them work, and there's still a, still a little bit of a black magic there. So, so there's all this learning curve about, you know, how do we get our idea 
actually function in the space. So those are the two levels of space access that led me to the idea that, you know, somebody needs to really solve this problem. Elon came along with SpaceX and in, in the end uh, created a great transportation system, but more importantly, I think has made space safe for investors. And that's what led to the possibility of investing in Skybox and some of these other things. Commercial space is not new, but this kind of investing at this lower CapEx level is new. And so, uh, you know, he just didn't solve the transportation problem completely. That really wasn't his goal. And uh, so we started Vector with the idea that uh, technology had moved along far enough to create enough demand for smaller vehicles. And what we're building is a, uh, a launch vehicle that's about 45 feet tall or 12, 13 meters if you're a metric speaking person, and uh, enough to put about 60 kilograms into space. And 15, 17 years ago when SpaceX, when we first started it, this was the vehicle we told Elon you should build, not because there was a market for it, but because this was a good place to start. You learn about rockets. You know, it's big enough to be tough to launch. It's big enough to put something into orbit. It's, it's you know, got all the things you got to learn about making rockets to graduate to making bigger ones. Well, Elon didn't think that it was big enough. The market didn't exist, and he was right. It was very immature at the time. So that led to the Falcon 1, which was about three times the size of this. And uh, what Vector uh, came from was John Garvey, who was one of the early guys at SpaceX, never actually worked there, but uh, he was actually the inspiration for Elon um, being able to build a rocket himself in a garage. You saw John doing it and his guys. Most of John's guys became early SpaceX employees. I stayed with SpaceX. John went off in the desert to build his Vector rocket. And uh, so when I start thinking about this new business, John was the first guy I thought of because he and I talked pretty pretty regularly. And uh, I know John uh, wanted to commercialize this in, in the way that we've done with Vector, but you know he was busy focusing on the technology and rightly so. So in those 15 years, John had created a great capability, you know, developed most of what is now the Vector R. And uh, what remained really was to go out, raise money and scale the organization so that we could build a lot of them. So we, when we started Vector, we, we, we uh, really bought John's company and so got a 10 to 15 year head start. And so that, that, uh, that, that's really why I started it was I had this convergence of opportunities between what John had done, where the market was, and, and sort of my, my place in life, you know, where I didn't really want to spend the rest of my life just racing cars when I might regret not doing this. So, so it was one of those split-second decisions I made, and hopefully it's the right one. You're developing two launch vehicles. Uh, the Vector R and the Vector H. Correct. What's the difference between the two, and how is development proceeding? So they're, they're basically two different sizes. The Vector R is capable of putting 60 kilograms into orbit. The Vector H is capable of about 150 to 170 kilograms into orbit. Like General Motors or Ford or any of the large car companies, uh, our rockets are, are based on similar parts between the two platforms. So they're, they're the same engines, for example. The R has three first-stage engines. The H has uh, six first-stage engines, same second-stage engines. The tanks are essentially the same but a bit longer. Same fuel, same avionics, same, basically same software, same architecture, uh, same launch platform, same launch technique. So we are able to spread all the uh, development costs across two vehicles. And what we're, the reason behind this is we see a bifurcated market. And one of the things that, that we've noticed over time is that the market uh, has a tendency to change in terms of how much demand there is. So we think initially the R is going to be more popular, plus it's, it was the easiest one to uh, build compared to the H. Um, and we think that over time, however, the H is going to become the more popular rocket. And our early sales are, are starting to, to spell this out for us. Um, but we're having two separate factory lines, one building an R, one building an H, and they can be dynamically allocated between the two of them as far as capacity goes. And they could swap between R and H uh, as needed. So uh, we can we can respond to exactly what the market needs rather than to uh, you know have to worry about a time-consuming, expensive switchover. So the development is going real well on the R. That's our first to market. Um, we've we've launched a full-scale uh, version of it that uh, in Mojave in May, and that was to mainly test the first-stage engine, the flight fuels, all the con ops, and we had all our avionics and flight software running on what I call mother-in-law mode. 
Um, and uh, so that all worked, autonomous flight termination systems in place. And it, it's all about building also the, the operational organization. If you look at, at what our real tough problems are in this company, it's not so much building the rocket. You know, John, John had done most of the technology development, most of the risk reduction. Really, the big challenge for us, and this is where we'll create value, is to build them like sausages and launch them by the hundreds. And so that's what we really have to focus on is, you know, getting this an operational ready company. And that's, that's what we're focused on mainly with the R. So we're planning a couple more of these suborbital flights. We've got one in, in August, early August in, uh, in, in uh, Camden, Georgia, out of the new spaceport. And then uh, we've got a couple more uh, with thrust vector control that are coming up later this year. And then we've got some full-scale carbon vehicles that'll go orbital more or less, kind of like the last uh, the last uh, uh, flight from uh, Rocket Lab. And uh, then our full orbital flights will be in early 2018. So the H is slated to uh, pick up where the R leaves off. So once the once the design is, is done with the R, we're going to uh, put together the H. We've got the basic design done, but uh, you know we'll have to do the additional uh, testing and so forth and modifications you have to make. So that's slated to be a 2019 uh, uh, inaugural debut. So, um, were you charging uh, per launch for each vehicle? Uh, so the Vector R is a million and a half uh, for a launch, and then the Vector H is three million. We have optional third stages on both vehicles that are either a chemical third stage or an electric propulsion upper stage, and uh, those are uh, anywhere between a half a million and a million, depending on the options on it. But they essentially make the rocket much bigger than they are, particularly the electric propulsion. We can put the same amount of mass with the Vector R into 800 kilometers as, as, as the Rocket Lab two-stage vehicle can do for about a third the price. And uh, are you considering offering uh, a rideshare service so that multiple customers can share the same launch? So, yeah, rideshare will be available. Um, we're in the middle of brokering a deal with a well-known rideshare provider uh, that they get that whole entire side of the uh, integration activity. So they would be, uh, in, a sense, in essence, our, uh, our supplier for rideshare. Um, we're going to concentrate at Vector only on single shroud customers. In other words, uh, it could be one satellite under the shroud or it could be, say, eight, but, but all from one customer. Um, we think that they're really two different business models, and uh, we think it's challenging enough uh, accomplishing our business objectives without having to learn about how to do ride shares. We think that's a whole other, whole other set of things to learn, and there are people that are damn good at it, and we'd just rather partner with them. Okay. So uh, you referenced earlier that you had done a, a, a test flight on May the 3rd uh, of the Vector R. I think that was the first one. Yep. Um, what was being tested on the flight, and what was the outcome? Yeah, so that was a Block Zero vehicle, as we call it. Block Zero are non-orbital. Block One are orbital vehicles. So that, that particular vehicle had three test objectives. One was to demonstrate the... Uh, con-ops of, of launch for a full-scale uh, Vector R, and that was a full-scale vehicle. Second objective was to demonstrate the flightworthiness of the of the first-stage engine on flight fuels. And then the third, the third objective was to demonstrate the uh, functionality of the flight computer, flight software, and flight termination system in a, in a shadow mode or mother-in-law mode. And so all three of those objectives were achieved. Uh, we were able to go out from uh, the time we showed up in the morning. And, and, and again, this is a uh, in the Mojave. This is a very primitive uh, launch site. So uh, anywhere else we would launch from would have a lot better accommodations. So we figured this to be worst case. But in three hours, we were able to raise the vehicle, get it ready for fueling, fuel it, and launch it. So that's part of what we really have to demonstrate and continue to demonstrate is that we can launch these things on very short time centers. We're looking at um, eventually being able to launch say two a day out of a single site, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And that's how we'll achieve our hundred plus launches a year is by those kind of con offs with a number of different sites. 
So the, the, the flight computer works perfectly well. Um, we're going back and doing some code changes, so we'll fly that again on this next flight out of Camden, Georgia. And then uh, then the, f- the first stage engine worked, worked beautifully. So uh, the only the only things that, that happened that didn't work was we had a uh, recovery parachute that failed, so we weren't able to recover the, the vehicle intact. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Um, so... Both NASA and DARPA have provided you with grants. What was the thinking behind that, and what are you doing for them? So these are really kind of legacy Garvey uh, spacecraft era contracts. They were SBIRs originally won by Garvey. Uh, they were awarded to us as Vector, uh, but were kind of underway during the transition period. And so what the NASA contract is is to fund our second stage development and a demonstration model and then the DARPA contract was uh, to fund the first stage uh, to a demonstration model. And uh, we have money to do both of those things. So they're offsetting some of our development costs sort of serendipitously. Uh, in the case of DARPA, uh, they baselined our first stage as the XS-1 space plane second stage. So, so that was their, their thinking behind this. I recently read that the value of the small satellite market over the next 10 years would be $5.3 billion. That's a pretty big market. What do you see as your share of that market? So where we look at in terms of, you know, our promises to investors and, you know, a benchmark that we consider ourselves completely successful is about 25% of what we think the addressable market for us is. That works out to be about 100, 125 launches a year within five years, you know, depending on whose model you look at um, and how you want to partition rideshare. And that's where you can get into one of these theological arguments is that whether people prefer rideshare or to have their own shroud. I'm a big believer, obviously, in having your own shroud. Um, you know, you, you, you'll, you'll, you can propose, uh, you know, four and 500 launches a year. And these are, these are spacecraft that are funded, planned. Not all of them will come to fruition, but on the other hand, there will be ones in the future that aren't known today that will come along as well. So within that time frame. So I think that's, you know, if, if we as the launch industry are able to actually live up to our promises, I think those numbers will be there. And for us, having a 25% market share or so uh, means that, that, you know, we, we won't really have to fight uh, with, you know, price, pricing pressure and things like that. And, you know, we know that there's others that are, that are addressing this market, you know, Virgin Galactic and, and Rocket Lab in particular, uh, but they're a much bigger rocket. And so we, we actually see them as, as looking at the next size up of satellites that are in the 200 plus kilogram category. And there's an argument for being in that market, but we've chosen uh, for our business thesis to be in the, in the low end of this because we think that we'll make more money by actually uh, uh, building them like sausages and flying by the hundreds because the economics become different because of the learning curve and the cost savings and the bulk purchasing power. Nobody's really ever done that in the rocket industry. And we know this is real in both aircraft and, and, and auto industries. And, uh, for me, it's a pretty straightforward prospect to bring it over to, to Vector. And that's, that's really where I bring my automotive experience into this is, is bringing that mentality to rockets. And um, you recently closed a Series A uh, round of funding for $21 million from Sequoia Capital. Uh, how much uh, funding have you raised uh, altogether? And how much uh, funding are you looking to raise? And... Uh, uh, how much uh, funding, yeah, I suppose, how much funding do you need? Well, so we've raised, all told, uh, somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of $30 million to date. Um, a fair amount of that we raised early on, uh, about uh, $6 million in, in uh, early seed rounds. $21 million uh, uh, injection from Sequoia, uh, Shasta, and Lightspeed. Um, is really going to take us to uh, clear through our orbital operations. So they'll get us almost to cash flow positive. We think we're going to need another another 10 to $20 million for scaling the operation. We're in the middle right now of planning a, a proper factory. We're operating out of, out of what was once my race car factory here in Tucson uh, next to a brew pub. So it's, uh, it's cozy here. We've got a lot of people stuffed into about 8,000 square feet, but we know we can build 
the first you know few models of that, but we have a pretty significant uh, capital expenditure to build a facility that can you know chunk out a, a couple of rockets a week, which is really what we're looking at. And uh, we've got a, a, a lease with uh, Pima County already. They've given us some land south of the airport next to Worldview. And uh, everything's moving well on that front. And uh, we expect to break ground sometime this summer uh, if we can get the deal put together on that. And uh, so, so once we do our Series B, we think we're done raising money. And uh, we, we think that uh, we'll be uh, cash flow positive and we're looking uh, to do a, a public uh, uh, offering of our stock uh, eventually here in the next few years. So there you go. You just took, you just answered my next question. <laughs> it was like, when are you going to go public? Or actually, it wasn't when would you consider going public? And well, the answer is yes. Okay. So yeah, um, and here's here's why. By the way, we think we think the Vector brand is great. We've had support from from people all around the country, all around the globe, that think that what our mission of you know doing this small and doing it frequently and and showing up the the traditional way of doing it by the hundreds of millions of dollars that they want to be a part of this vision. And, and I'm, I'm very humbled by all the support we've had from, you know, people that want to put their hundred dollars in, you know, alongside the investors that put tens of millions. So yeah, it's, it's a great thing. And we think it's the, the right thing to do. And we, hopefully we're, we're going to be successful at it. So you actually bring up a good point. I mean, I understand the, the legacy of bringing in, uh, uh, Garvey's company, uh, into Vector to make Vector, but I mean, you know, your company is just over a year year old. Uh, you've raised thirty million dollars in that year, just over a year. Um, do you say? Do you think uh, that that it says a lot to the business case that, not just the business case, but to where we are at in terms of investment in uh, commercial space companies that you're seeing this kind of uh, interest and success? Yeah, that, that's really true. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to take a little little personal credit on some of this in that it's really hard to raise money for rocket companies. And if you go talk to any VC out there, they will tell you exactly that. So that we were able to raise such a significant amount of money so quickly from what I consider the best VCs in the business. I mean, Sequoia, look at, look at who they funded. So little companies like Apple, uh, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, Google, you know, these, these are, these are the companies that they think that we're capable of being, uh, in, in the same neighborhood of. And so we're very humbled by that, but at the same time, they see our vision, uh, and they see beyond the rocket, which is really, I think our success story in being able to raise this kind of money is more about space access, not just rockets. We've got our galactic sky constellation, which is all about being able to have the, the average person put their ideas in space, much the same way you upload an app to the cell phone network and it shows up on everybody's iPhone for purchase. We'll be doing the same thing in creating a network in space where people can have access to satellites. They don't have to build them. They don't have to pay for an entire constellation. You know, if you're if you're uh, a single individual and you're interested in in certain colors of homes, for example, you got a business case. Well, that's what this will allow you to do. So that's what these guys saw. Now, that being said, within the greater context of the community, last year was really hard to raise money in the venture community. They they had invested a lot of money in space and were waiting for some payout. So there was a, there was a pause that everybody saw. If you look at the numbers, they were a bit down in terms of total investments. This year, it's picked up again, and I think there's a renewed faith that space is finally moving forward. Part of that, I think, is the fact that we're moving forward, and others like Rocket Lab are finally getting their launch vehicles going forward. The, the big damper on this industry, and this is this was the frustration I had, was that the damper on it was, was that the guys didn't want to invest in more space companies that couldn't get a launch, yet I couldn't talk to any VC that would listen to, I've got to solve the launch problem first before I can move on to the next problem of making space access easier for the average person. You know, you said that in, in uh, SpaceX, when it first got started, first rocket was the Falcon one, which is a, obviously a larger rocket than, than the Vector R and the H. Um, and that, you know, Elon had wanted to go up to the next, take it to the next level, develop the Falcon 9, a much bigger rocket. Do you think SpaceX is, has made a mistake now by ignoring this segment of, of the business? 
Not at all. So, you know, you can't do everything. There's not one universal car company. There's not one universal airline uh, manufacturer, airplane manufacturer. You know, so, so when SpaceX began, uh, what I didn't realize, uh, in fact, was it was really about going to Mars. I should have realized it because Elon first approached me with the idea of, you know, sending a, a, a mission to Mars as a symbol of humanity become a multi-planetary species. When the Russians wouldn't sell the rockets, he said, well, let's just build it ourselves. It's cheaper. You know, so there was this, this progression of logic or madness, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, we said, okay, let's start building rockets. And the reason I left SpaceX was, you know, I didn't see that he was serious about sending people to Mars. That was never something we discussed, but it was obviously very much in his mind as we see now. And as I read the tea leaves as time went on, I could see that that was happening. So my view of what SpaceX has done has been very logical in a certain worldview. And that worldview is that Elon, in, in, in the ultimate sort of reason for doing this, is, is sending humans to Mars and colonizing Mars. To do that is to create a transportation system and an ecosystem for doing that. And in order to, to have that happen, somebody's got to pay for it. And what better way to do that than to have the market itself pay for it by creating objects and services of value that are, are serving both purposes. So, yeah, well, my opinion, it's an absolutely brilliant strategy. And he, he decided to focus on that. And that is rather orthogonal to the small launch side of things. So, in fact, I, I will admit to stealing a uh, page out of Elon's playbook when we formed Vector by saying, let's do the same thing. Let's create an ecosystem for the entrepreneur and that ecosystem centers around the small end of things. And that was my aha moment was, okay, if we do essentially the equivalent of the, the Falcon 9 and the, and the, uh, uh, the Dragon uh, capsule, and in our case, it's the Vector R&H and, and the Galactic Sky Satellite constellation, we can create an a, a ecosystem which will build itself. So I, I liken ourselves more to Apple or uh, even some of the early uh, PC folks who who grabbed on to the burgeoning microprocessors and microcomputers, which were crap in the 80s, and you could hardly do anything on them compared to the mainframes. You know, that's to say that the mainframe guys were in the wrong industry is the wrong way to look at it. It's, it, you know, these industries mature and they change and they, and they go their own way. Um, you know, the ones I worry about are not the SpaceX's of the world. I worry about the ULA's of the world. I worry about the Boeing's of the world. I worry about the Lockheed's of the world. And dinosaurs do fall. Dinosaurs once ruled this earth, and they don't rule it anymore. Little, little furry mammals stole their eggs and ate them. And in, in a lot of ways, we saw the same thing in the computer industry and tech. And that's what I think is going to happen here. SpaceX is always going to be around. They've got a unique purpose. Uh, they've got a, a very strong position in the market. We're, we're not going to affect their business base. So um, you mentioned uh, your constellation. I actually haven't read much on that yet. Can can you give me a little bit more information on that? Sure. So the basic idea is to create roughly the equivalent of, of Amazon Web Services, but in space. And uh, if, you, if you think about what you do when you get on your computer, you interface with a mesh network that's worldwide. And depending on the information that you're requesting or sending, it, it will go in undetermined places to get to wherever it's going or wherever it's coming from to your personal computer. It's all transparent to you. You are not an expert on, on networking. You're not an ex, even an expert on computers anymore. Uh, you're just using your terminal, and, and you may be expert on the interface on that terminal. But by and large, you know, if, if, if you're, you're dealing with, I don't know, say you're a Bitcoin person, you're dealing with special Bitcoin information, you know, that's your expertise. So, what we want to do is to create the equivalent of that in space so that people can, can focus on their particular uh, uh, creative or entrepreneurial expertise and make money at it, make success at it, whether it's science, whether it's money, I don't care what it is, and get past this business of having to build specialized satellites and launching them, getting operational in orbit. It, only by doing that do we actually unlock the explosive potential of using space as a place to do commerce. We're just scratching the surface today. And the reason that that is only scratching is not the potential of it, but rather all the steps in the, in the, in the expense of capital and time to get the stuff there. So, so if we can bypass that, we've got, a, we've got something that appeals now 
to where I think all the uh, the innovation in our society worldwide is in software. Anybody, a kid in India at a, at a computer terminal to somebody you know in his mother's basement in Los Angeles can, can write code and put it out places. We've seen that revolution, and we want to do the same thing in space with Galactic Sky. So what we've what we've invented and patented is something that is is I think fairly clever. We took the virtual machines, which which is really the backbone of modern networking and reliable networking, and we've patented the use of virtual machines on spacecraft. And we own so far two of those patents have issued in a very short period of time, six months, which is unreal. It's usually a four year period. We have about seven more that are about to issue uh, that are that are behind us. So we own that entire space of using virtual machines on spacecraft. What that means is that you can program your app, and that app can go on a satellite. And if you know about satellites, you know that putting new software on them is a very scary process because they're typically integrated with the hardware. It's kind of like reprogramming your TV is the equivalent of a satellite. But we don't worry about putting apps on our on our mobile phones. We don't worry about putting new apps on our on our uh, uh, Mac. Like I can run Windows with impunity on my Mac on a, on a virtual machine. Windows can do its stupid stuff in blue screen all at once. And, and it doesn't hurt my machine. Same thing can happen on the satellites. What this allows then is multiple users to share satellites, to share a network without knowing that the other users are there and with being able to then take that virtual machine as if it's a physical entity, it moves from machine to machine. So if you're, for example, interested, we saw a news story about North Korea uh, where you know we're using commercial satellites to monitor North Korea. Well, if you want to track stuff in a country like that, and you want to do it 24-7, you're, right now you have to use a geosatellite to sit there and watch it all the time. That's so far away, you have to have a big camera on it to get the kind of resolution that's useful. So if you do it from low Earth orbit, then you can have much smaller cameras to get the equivalent resolution. And now we can have a pseudo-geo system where our virtual machine hops to the next satellite that's coming into view over North Korea. That's just one example of how these sort of things can be used. The point is, we don't know how how these things are going to be used. So we want to create a generic enough architecture that resembles the mesh network called the internet here on Earth. We want to put that in space and couple that to you know limited ability for for sensors and and for you know for RF tracking and all those things that that we find useful. So we think that that won't be you know certainly 100% of the use cases but even if we scratch 10 or 20% of potential use cases it's enormously valuable for uh, for technical innovation and commerce and how large would this uh, constellation be so we're we're looking at the moment of our initial constellation being about 10 satellites we're going to launch two demo satellites we're we're in, in the process of building them right now um, we'll launch those in 2018 our initial constellation will be 10. We're going to use that primarily for communications of our launch vehicles and our, and our customers' payloads as they go up. And then uh, in 2019, we'll be expanding up to about 50 uh, of these satellites. And one of the things we don't know is how many we'll actually need. That'll depend on user requirements, which is one of the reasons why coupling this with a launch vehicle company makes sense all of a sudden. And again, SpaceX has decided the same thing with their their uh, their constellation for uh, uh, internet worldwide internet, you know, if we need a launch vehicle, we pull one out of the production line or increase the production a little bit, and we just go do it. And we do it at our own cost. So we control the whole thing from top to bottom, and that we think that we can be responsive enough uh, to make that happen. So if you look at things like Iridium, which I worked on, one of the things that killed it was how long it took to get there, plus how expensive it was to build. And it's a rigid network, which is sort of just a technical differentiation. But the, the problem was is to, to change something on that rigid network would take so long. We want to be able to respond very rapidly to evolving customer needs so that we don't get flanked by terrestrial kinds of technologies like, like Iridium did by terrestrial uh, broadband. Okay. So... <laughs> Uh, going back to, to, to the launch portion of the business, who do you see as uh, your prime competitors at this time? Yeah, so, you know, I, we, we really honestly don't see any real competitors right now. I know there's a few 
companies uh, that have, have gotten funding that are actually operating in stealth mode right now that have similar-sized vehicles. Um, personally, I don't understand why in the world you would want to work in stealth mode uh, when you have to actually sell the rockets, uh, but maybe there's a logic there I don't understand. So we have to assume since they're working in stealth mode, they're just way far behind us, and they just don't want to be bothered by the publicity and the and the attention that uh, that that draws off energy, time, and money. So uh, apart from that, so we really have sort of two other categories of competitors. One is the other small launch vehicles like Rocket Lab and and Virgin Galactic, and then then I think the bigger rideshare vehicles. Uh, SpaceX has been doing ride shares, and so so of the Indians. The Russians are kind of out of that business now. Uh, I don't know what their future is going to be, but that's really really what our competition is. Um, and to a large part, the Chinese, for example, are barred from many of the addressable markets we go for. for. So we don't see ourselves – I mean, I haven't run into competing with them in too many contracts, one so far, but uh, by and large, it's, it's, it's going to be the, the, the ride shares or – or these other guys. So the one that's closest to us is Rocket Lab. And, you know, I helped those guys get started back uh, on their B round, helped Peter raise that. And I know I'm wish them luck. You know, I think, I think the industry needs both of us. And uh, I see them as evolving into a bigger vehicle eventually, uh, just based on their technology and, and the way I see the market. That's probably where they're going to go. Virgin, I got lots of friends there. George Whiteside, their CEO, is a friend of mine, personal friend of mine. And wish them luck. You know, we're all in this business together. We all got to be successful. Um, there's certainly room for all of us. All right. So let's get back to uh, some practical matters uh, with respect to the rockets, and that's uh, launch sites. Um, you've ah. got uh, – Two, two launch sites identified at this point, the Pacific uh, Spaceport Complex in Alaska, which are going to use for polar and sun-synchronous orbits, and Cape Canaveral Air Force Station for your low-inclination orbits. Uh, are you looking at other launch sites in the continental U.S.? And, because I have an audience that's partly Canadian, um, are you looking at uh, any Canadian options? Well, I think I'll have a pleasant answer for you. <laughs> so... The, 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 the big picture answer is we need as many launch sites as we can possibly get because, you know, you go back to what I said, our, our fundamental value equation is, is build them like sausages and fly them as much as we can. So if you break sort of the second part of the flying them down, you know, really, I, it, as we broke our CONOPS plan, we think one site, two launches per week on the same day is about as good as we're going to do and without really sort of having our own site that's like a, a launch factory. And even if we had something like that, we'd have to be so remote as to not provide a distraction to anybody near us that it would be an impractical launch site. So we really think that given the broad array of inclinations we have to go to and so forth, it's a multiple launch site strategy. So uh, that's why we started with two, uh, which is Kodiak, as you said, and, and Cape Canaveral. And that would give us polar access and low out the low inclination access down to about 23 degrees. Um, so we are working right now with Camden Spaceport. They're not a real spaceport yet, uh, but the legislature's passed the, the law enacting the spaceport, and the governor signed it. Uh, so they've got all their their, their liability uh, legislation in place. Uh, they have yet to go forward with the funding, but what we're seeing, we're we're very encouraged by. So we're counting on that as a, as a strong third candidate. Uh, we're looking for a couple of more polar access sites, and those, that's where things get tough. Um, we have um, a number of foreign sites identified as well as some, some domestic sites. The domestic ones are Puerto Rico and Hawaii uh, as being potential polar sites. We could launch out of, um, out of the Western Test Range at Vandenberg, but uh, my experience working with them on any sort of commercial basis is, is very poor. Um, so we're, we're working that from a political point of view. That may end up being one of them, but that's not really our prime site right now. Uh, as far as the foreign sites go, uh, there's a European site that, you know, if you follow the news, those guys are trying to put something together in England, and we're, we're teamed up with one of those guys. Uh, I don't know how real that will be, but, you know, we're, we're very deep in discussions with them. Uh, I have been talking with a, a former uh, member of parliament from Canada about your site there that uh, 
I think it was uh, the Swiss company uh, that, that was going to be based out of there. So we're actually really looking at that, and that, that's got some promise to us. Um, and then we're looking at a site in Mexico and then a couple other sites in South America. The issue with anything foreign, uh, it's not prohibited for us to launch rockets out of foreign territory. The problem is, is you know, as we see in North Korea on a daily basis, the U.S. is very serious about not letting this technology proliferate to other countries. And, uh, you know, while we're not worried about uh, Canada as our enemy or neighbor, um, you know, it's still a foreign country. We still have to go through all the the, the uh political and licensing uh, bureaucracy to get that done. So we're not really certain how well that ends up working. Uh, that's why we're, you know, we have a dedicated team working on this very subject. So it's, it's very, very high on our priorities and we're leaving no stone unturned that seems realistic. Things like New Mexico, they've got a spaceport. Uh, there, was a, there was an op-ed written where they were criticizing the spaceport for not getting us, Vector, there, but people don't realize you can't launch out of a landlocked location like New Mexico. There's too many people around, and just the probability of something dropping on them, we're not the Soviet Union. We, we just can't do it. The FAA won't let us do it. And so, you know, Alabama's trying to get a spaceport for whatever hell reason, I don't know, uh, because it's hard to launch out of that place. So there's a, it's, it's a geographic uh, disadvantage that they don't have. The Canadian site, you know, the, the thing you got going for it, and I've launched something out of, uh, what was it, Churchill um, in Western Canada years and years ago. It's a sounding rocket. You know, one of the advantages Canada has, there's nothing to the north. So it's a, it's a little bit like some of these remote sites in the world where you could go polar uh, by flying north and, and things drop out on land. And, you know, we've got a, we've got a first-stage recovery uh, capability on this that if we had a land-based recovery that would be actually very good so so canada is one of the one of the more interesting ones for me at the moment well uh, i'm familiar with with uh, what's going on here in canada and uh, maritime launch services uh, which is uh, the one company that uh seems to have some uh possibility of actually doing something um they're looking at uh, launching out of nova scotia um so they're you know it's a, a ukrainian uh rocket but the u.s uh backing uh in canada uh they're looking at uh not your launch market they're looking at the much uh, larger 600 kilograms or so uh, or 500, 600 kilograms, I think. Um, and they're looking at uh, doing eight launches a year, but they're going to have a facility and they want to share that facility with whoever else wants to launch from there. So uh, I know they're open to anybody, but of course you said there, you know, there are issues with, uh, you know, crossing the border. Um, yeah. So you said uh, the Cape, where, where are you going to launch from uh, at the Cape? So we have a, uh, a lease with uh, Lodge Complex 46 in Space Florida, which is a, uh, a former Navy pad, and Space Florida uses it for commercial launches. Um, so right now that's where we're starting. We're working with Space Florida to get a dedicated pad. I mean, we don't need much. So, so if you go online and look at you know how we launch these things, we, we've done some stunts like pull our uh, – our vector R down the streets of Tucson downtown on our on our mobile launch platform. You know, really all we need is a concrete pad, and we don't we don't even need that. We demonstrated that with our first launch on on sand. So, you know, it is somewhere in Florida where we're you know away from everybody else would be our our preference. Uh, and we're working with them, like I say, on some old Loki Dart sites that actually look very promising. Um, but for for starters, we'll be using LC forty six. Now, I saw on your website uh, there was a graphic that showed your launch uh, facilities, the two of them, but there was also another one that was pointing to a barge off the West Coast. Is that something you're still considering? Yeah, so, so that's our ultimate uh, uh, you know, non-launch range approach is a barge. And uh, one of Garvey's experiences was on sea launch, and I guess you could call that a barge. It was an oil platform. And uh, there's a lot of things they did wrong, a lot of things they did right about that. That's a capability that we remain interested in. We've done some some testing prior to uh, to uh, Vector, and uh, we may end up doing some some uh, testing of the kind we did in the Mojave off of a barge. So there, there's some unique issues dealing with a barge 
that you don't get on land that we would have to work out. Um, but, you know, barring, uh, barring, you know, the launch sites being cooperative, you know, that would be our backup plan is to uh, just go off the coast of California for our uh, polar launches on a barge or even out of, uh, out of Hawaii. And, uh, you know, there, there's another one of these startups that's still in stealth mode that's, that's considering exactly this scenario. So, uh, like, we, we've actually done it, and we know it's harder than it looks. So, so uh, that's why we're not uh, we're not pushing that forward, you know, into the into the limelight. So, now you're talking of, about launching, getting a cadence up to at least 100 launches a year. That's going to bring up range issues. Uh, do you see that as being something that that like, like it's a really big issue where you know you need to launch but you're just not getting range clearance for whatever reason or or is that something that that that's going to be workable and and you're going to be able to get up to to that kind of cadence well we believe we can work it we don't think it's trivial um so we think this is one of our biggest issues that we face so part of it is is sort of human perception and tradition part of it is technical part of it is safety and part of it is practical so, you know, when it was just going backwards on the, the practicalities, weather conditions, if you look at weather, for, especially for the small rockets, the reality is, you know, five or 10% of the launches get scrubbed because of, you know, environmental conditions of weather and so forth. The vast majority of them get scrubbed by you know, people in the keep out zones, for example, in Florida, you know, a boat or a plane goes through. In fact, when we were launching out of Mojave, um, you know, we followed all the no dams and everything else. And right like. I don't know, 20 seconds before we launched, this Cessna starts wandering literally right on top of the rocket. And so we got on the got on the horn with him and told him, hey, you're right on top of a rocket launch. And I've never seen him scoot so fast. So so one of the things that, that, you know, we need to work with the ranges on is, you know, the recognition that this is a small rocket. It's got an autonomous flight safety system. We don't need them to be looking at it and monitoring. We don't, we don't impose on the range, range infrastructure. I call this a minimal range footprint. And we don't use our telemetry systems. We bring it all ourselves. So we're just the guys off in the corner that are shooting these little rockets off a couple times a week. And that's why we need multiple ranges, too. And, uh, you know, to, to get to 100, it's, you know, it's two a week, roughly. And so if we have, uh, you know, say four sites and we've got, you know, half of them are operational at any one given time, you know, those kind of numbers start to work out. It's when you start looking at, gee, can we actually do three and 400 a, a year? That gets a lot more challenged. We think the 100 is actually fairly achievable. The three and 400, which we think the market will sustain eventually, is a bigger challenge. But we're, you know, we're planning on 100. We're, we're hoping for three and 400 if we're ever lucky enough to to be able to do that. So we're not just limiting ourselves on 100. Okay, so uh, last October, you signed a $60 million deal with York Space Systems for six launches of the Vector uh, H vehicle, the larger of the two. Uh, and they also have an option for 14 more. Are you still on track uh, with that contract and being able to make the first launch in 2019? Yeah, so they're looking at the Vector H, and, you know, as of today, there's there's no delays on that. You know, the Vector R is on track. Um, you know, we're we're in the process of ordering the, the parts for the first flight vehicles. So, uh, you know, the financing's in place. So, you know, unless we have some major, you know, development test failures or, or some uh, regulatory issues, we should be on schedule for those things. And, you know, I'm, I, I've been on the record as being a big critic of, what I call the, the Elon schedules. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to fight about these things. You know, he, he believed that you push people by setting unrealistic schedules. And I believe that you push people, but have realistic schedules. So, so we're trying to run the company by that, that way. And hopefully, you know, we're going to do exactly what we say. I, I want to be that guy rather than the guy that everybody knows is, is several years behind where he says he is. So, uh, with your factory, uh, I mean, one of the things that SpaceX has been able to do is, and, and sort of forced to do, to, to try and meet some of the the costs that they uh, savings that they want is they've been integrating, you know, the uh, a lot of the manufacturing and, and doing a lot of the manuf- manufacturing themselves. Uh, are you outsourcing 
more or are you keeping most of it in-house? Yeah, that's a great question. So Elon was famously uh, stubborn about outsourcing anything, and uh, and I fought a lot about that in the early days. And I'm not a big fan of outsourcing everything, and I'm not a, a fan of insourcing everything. So we, we try to take a look at that anything that we can have multiple support, multiple suppliers for, and it's it's a cost that we can afford, and we don't think it poses a threat to our supply chain. Uh, we'll try to outsource it because that's CapEx we don't have to spend. And some of those things, you know, that we can even do that with, we'll bring them in-house over time because we want to control our own destiny. But initially up front, we're going to outsource more than we will down the road. So gradually we'll bring some of these things in-house. For example, the carbon fiber tanks are being built out of house. We're working very actively to bring all that stuff in. That's part of our expansion capital plans. Uh, you know, the computers we build ourselves, uh, the rocket engines we build ourselves, you know, the 3D printed injectors, the, we went, we're already winding the, uh, the nozzles here in, in our factory here in Tucson and do our first test of a Tucson wound nozzle uh, next week. And, uh, you know, the valves we buy from the valve vendors and so forth. So it's a, you know, we don't have that many parts. We don't have that much complexity in, in the vehicle. It's, it's like 12 or 1300 parts. Uh, it's just not that much compared to say 10,000 with SpaceX. We just have a order of magnitude different problem. Um, and, and we're, we're looking at people that can supply stuff that works, that, uh, that can be reliably supplied to fix the price point. Okay. Well, Jim, I'd like to thank you for being on the SpaceQ podcast. I hope you'll consider being on a future show, show so that we can discuss uh, the progress that you're making. Anytime, Mark. Always a pleasure. Okay, that's a wrap on this episode of the SpaceQ podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing a review if you're so inclined.